Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Jamie Bernstein. Jamie is a writer, broadcaster, and filmmaker, and the author of the recently published Famous Father Girl, a memoir of growing up Bernstein. Correct. <laughs> Welcome, Jamie. Thanks for joining me today. It's great to join you. So tell me how you came to write the memoir. Well, it was just the right moment in a bunch of ways. One of the ways was just a very pragmatic thing. I was having a conversation with an acquaintance of mine who was a book agent, because I'd been thinking about writing a memoir for some time. And he said, well, you do realize that if you write a memoir and you key it into your dad and it comes out during his centennial year, you're going to sell a book. And that was an incredibly pragmatic piece of advice, but I realized he was right. I literally ran home from that meeting and started writing the book that very day. Uh, and then uh, also, though, it was the right time just in my own life. I just felt like I had reached a point where I was ready to tell a whole story and look back at the whole trajectory and, and consider it and interpret it now. I think that's apparent in the reading of the book. It just reads so seamlessly and naturally. You're a great storyteller. Oh, thank you. Um, and I would imagine it's not easy to write a family story, um, and, and you do tell it really well. I was, I was kind of struck by what my takeaway was, that it really tells a story of a generation, if I may. And I think your parents and their friends were living in an interesting time. I wonder if you have thoughts about that. Yes, I agree, and that was definitely one of my intentions when I set about writing this book. I wanted to really try to convey a picture of what life was like back in those days. It was a very interesting time in American history, right there in the middle uh, 20th century, uh, not just for my parents' generation, but also for mine. It was an amazing time to grow up, to be a teenager, and to be a young woman in the U.S., and also to be growing up in what was really the epicenter of American cultural life in New York City in the mid-20th century. Um, and as a little kid, I didn't realize how illustrious my parents and their friends were. When you're really little, you have no way of comparing your own family to anyone else's. It's your family is just your family. It's your environment. So it was only later, as I grew older, that I began to grasp that this was quite an astonishing array of, of luminaries who were traipsing in and out of our apartment all the time. And, and it's, well, having some similar background, I would say, yeah, you, you don't think it's anything but the ordinary. The only thing I wanted for was to have Beaver, Cleaver's parents, you know, Warden June be, yes, be at exactly. the head of the that's household. A, exactly. And, of course, I, ironically, I thought that's what normal life was. I so wanted to just crawl into those sitcoms on TV, and I thought that was what real life was, and that I just had had the, the misfortune of, of living in this peculiar, non-normal environment in New York City. But what is, what is normal? Um, exactly. In, in one chapter, you write about an orchestral suite that your father wrote for his Dybbuk Ballet. You also mention in the same chapter 
your father and your brother shul hopping, a term I love, uh, on Yom Kippur. <laughs> you talk about celebrating Passover and Easter, and you write, our way of being Jewish was nebulous. I found this really interesting, and again, something so relatable. It was not at all unfamiliar. And again, I think it's a timepiece in a way. And could you talk a little bit about how you think Jewishness played into your upbringing? Yeah, I, w I would like to, especially right now. Um, you know, uh, lately I've been thinking a lot about the way that our family was Jewish. And it was so much a, a cultural Jewishness more than a religious Jewishness. We didn't go to synagogue every Friday, Saturday. It just wasn't a thing that we did. That's why the shul hopping was important because Yom Kippur was the only day of the year, more or less, um, that there was any synagogue involvement or attendance going on in our family. And it was really just a thing that my father did with my brother. And my brother was bar mitzvahed. I, nor, neither I or my sister were bat mitzvahed. And uh, as I say in the book, it was the only time that I was grateful to be treated as a second-class citizen because I had no interest in being Jewish in a religious way. Um, and I've been, but, but since uh, the awful shootings in Pittsburgh, I've been thinking a lot about this and how I realized that it was a kind of luxury we grew up with that we could be Jewish in this cultural way and, and, and feel that, that we could do that without any consequences or that, that we didn't feel any need to be Jewish in any other way, that there, there was this total liberty and, and flexibility about how you could express your own relationship to Judaism in your family. But, and, you know, we, and that was because we all felt that we had moved on from, you know, that, that really toxic level of anti-Semitism in this country. I think we all felt that way, especially here in New York City, uh, which was, you know, so full of Jewish people and Jewish culture, and everybody felt very comfortable about that here in New York. And so having grown up in that kind of an environment, it, it, it really shocked and sickened me when, when we all had to experience just a little while ago this awful shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh because I had erroneously assumed that we had all moved on from such awful circumstances in this country. And it, it, I felt that, that the luxury I grew up with of feeling like I didn't have to stand up for being Jewish had been robbed from me. Mm -hmm. And again, when I refer to the generation, I think it's so true because you think of your parents' parents and then your parents' being able to assimilate, and then ultimately for the generation that comes after that, yeah, it was a time when you felt comfortable in the world. Yeah, and you know, there, there, there's a lot of uh, discussion nowadays about what, what some you know, Jewish people worry is a, is a watering down of Judaism in this country, and I know that there are some people who worry about that, but um, I myself felt very comfortable being Jewish the way that I was Jewish, which was, and it, the way our family was, which was very much through the culture and, and through the humor. And uh, I write in my book about 
how much we loved our Jewish jokes and how we collected them and, and prized them and shared them. They were like the, the family jewels. I actually had intended to have a joke appendix in my book, <laughs> but um, in the end it was cut because the book was just too long. But I had wanted to, uh, you know, have all of our favorite jokes written out at the end of the book. Well, they work. They work really well within the construct of the book. And you know, I think that there's a story that really touched me, and I think it speaks to what you were just talking about, which is an event that took place at the White House. With and you were there, and you did the menorah lighting. Oh, and, in the and, Lincoln bedroom. In the Lincoln bedroom. So yes, you are culturally Jewish, and yet innately knew or your brother knew that you weren't going to be able to blow out the candles. You had the conflict of having to leave. The candles needed to stay lit. So he just sort of, it sounded like, with great presence of mind, he walked it into the bathroom, put it in the sink like any one of us would have thought to do, and, you know, the White House still remains. (laughs) (laughs) It is, but um, we had quite a moment looking at each other and giggling nervously, like, are are we inadvertently going to burn the White House down tonight? (laughs) Starting from Lincoln's bedroom, oh my God! Yeah. But um, it was it was a marvelous moment. Our whole family was there together because it was the night my father got the Kennedy Center honor, and so there was a you know pre-performance uh, gathering at the White House, and there we all were: my father and his mother and aunts and and his brother and sister and and um, all three of us kids, and I mean, it was just a big, big pile of mishpacha, all gathered together in the Lincoln bedroom to light the menorah on the first night of Hanukkah. And it was very nice of Rosalind Carter to go to the trouble to find us a place to do this in the midst of this enormous party. They're just, they're on so many levels, I just love that story. As I say, just that, yeah, um, the tradition, the tradition carries on. And the title of the book is one I'd love to ask you to speak about. What was it like to grow up as famous father girl? And maybe you have to contextualize that for our listeners who haven't read the book yet. Yes, I, I'd be glad to. Uh, the Well, I had a second grade classmate, Lisa, who used to tease me by calling me Famous Father Girl. That was her nickname for me. And uh, that made me fairly uncomfortable. And I just decided it was a great title because there's something about it that kind of pokes you in the eye. And I like that it's a little bit rude. I like that it's alliterative also. And, And I like that it just doesn't make any bones about what this book is about. It just puts it right out there. I'm not being coy. I'm not being evasive. Yes, my father was famous, and this is what it was like to live in that environment. And you're very honest about it. Um, well, I, that, that, was my, that was my approach to the whole story. I mean, my rule of thumb was to just tell the truth about things as I saw them happening uh, and to do that in the context of you know, love for my family and for my dad, and 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 that and that, and just to kind of um, go on the assumption that that the essential and real warmth and connectedness of our family would would put everything that happened in in a context of love, because I'm thinking that anything that you try to hide or obfuscate 
is likely to come back around and bite you in the butt. And so I think it's, you know, that anyway, this was my, this is how I went about it. I, I felt it was better to just tell the story as I saw it rather than try to uh, hide the, the, the questionable stuff. But I sense from the way that you tell the story of your family that you were, um, you were a close-knit family. And you could wrestle with all of that in a very supportive, constructive way. Well, I mean, it is true. It's very true that we're close-knit and, and all devoted to each other. Um, it, we did not always have the vocabulary to talk about some of the tough stuff that was going on around us. It, that part was hard. You know, you know, my father was bisexual and... It was all very hard still to talk about those things back in the 1970s and even 1980s. It was, all, it was early times still. Today we have that vocabulary so much more. But we were, we were kind of groping in the dark with a lot of this stuff. But I think it was our essential connectedness with each other that, that got us through it. And your recall of your life really was quite something to me. Um, was it hard to thread that together, or did it just kind of come out that the, the timing was right to revisit? Uh, yeah, to revisit your your you know childhood, growing up, etc. Yeah, I felt like the timing was right, and that you know I had come to a point in my own personal life where I felt like I had the ability to go back and, and kind of synthesize my experience and, and have a, a sense of trajectory about it. And trajectory is a, another question. So um, at this point, is it interesting to sort of see that trajectory in terms of where you ended up professionally? Uh, yes. Well, one of the things that this book is about is how I made my own peace with music. Um, I was a very musical person. I had a great ear, but making music uh, filled me with ambivalence. And yet I tried for many years to pursue a career as a singer-songwriter. I played the p piano and the guitar, but not very well. And I was always sort of in agony about it. Comparisons are odious, and I always had that sickening, oh, who do I think I am feeling that made me... Uh, it was very distracting, and it made me a very neurotic musician. And so, uh, by accident, I came upon a, a kind of a solution to this conundrum. Um, and quite late in my life, not until I was about 50, did I discover by accident that talking about music in concerts or uh, in writing uh, was actually a very satisfying way of staying in the world of music without actually making the music with my own body. That, that turned out to be the unforeseen uh, resolution of this lifelong conundrum. Because the whole time I was making music myself, I felt like, as I say in the book, it was like having one foot on the gas and the other foot on the brake simultaneously. And I was driving myself crazy. And is the story that you ended up telling the story that you started out to tell, or were you surprised where, where, you, where you went with it? Yeah, well, this was the element 
that surprised me as I was writing the book. I did not see this making my peace with music thing in advance. I discovered it as I was writing the book. So that was a big surprise, actually. So the whole process of writing the book turned out to be a kind of therapeutic resolving, or, or it helped me um, realize some things that I hadn't really thought about before. Well, again, thank you so much for joining me and for writing the book. I was reading it over the Thanksgiving holiday, and at my brother's, and he kept saying, must be really good because you haven't come downstairs at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's very nice. I mean, um, uh, you know, I hope you came down eventually, but I'm delighted to hear that, that you were so absorbed. Yeah, I did the feast thing, and then it was great. Uh, so again, for our <laughs> listeners, the book is Famous Father Girl. It's available through the Yiddish Book Center's English Language Bookstore, yiddishbookcenter.org, and at bookstores all over the country. And we're looking forward to welcoming you to our area of the world when the Yiddish Book Center is co-partnering for your author talk with the Springfield JCC with the Literature. I look forward to it as well. Again, thank you, and uh, keep writing. Will do. Alrighty, bye-bye. Thanks. Yep. Bye. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a podcast of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. I'm Shay Collins, Membership and Communications Assistant at the Yiddish Book Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org. While you're there, I recommend listening to episode 104, A Stop at the Iconic Red Apple Restaurant, where Elaine Fried Lindenblatt discusses her memoir about her family's Route 17 establishment, The Red Apple Rest. Seid mir stark und gesund. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.